Hello, this is Dr. Ned Hallowell welcoming you to my podcast, Dr. Hallowell's Wonderful World of Different. Today we have a truly special guest. I often say that about all my guests because they all are truly special, but this one is extra special. I've known this man for, well, since what year? 1986. 86. Okay. Wow. 1986. You do the arithmetic and that's how long I've known him. And we'll tell the story of how we met and we'll tell the story of what he's doing. But he is one of the leading advocates for mental health in the country. He's uh, the medical director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. And he's the author of an upcoming book that we'll tell you about Beyond that, he's a true mensch, as you will discover when you listen to him. He's a man of tremendous practicality as well as knowledge. And uh, it's a true pleasure to welcome my dear friend, colleague, and man who uh, I respect, treasure, and indeed love, Dr. Ken Duckworth. Ken, welcome to the wonderful world of different. Thank you, Ned. What a fun opportunity this is to connect with you on your new and improved podcast. (laughs) Well, thank you. Why don't we start with the headline, which is your upcoming book, something that people will be reading for years to come. It's I, I believe it'll be an instant classic. You're in the process of writing it right now, but why don't you tell our listeners about it? Because it, it's very exciting. So, my dad had very bad bipolar disorder and was a singularly loving and creative person. And I grew up in the 70s and 80s before anybody talked about anything. And been waiting for a book where you could learn from people who lived with these conditions, you could learn from their family, and then you could ask the smartest people in America who run research studies commonly answered questions. Every five years or so, I'd go to Barnes & Noble or the Harvard Coop or somewhere, and I'd look for the mental health recovery book. Where's a practical, first-person-based guide where I can find out, how do you get help? What are the strategies that you can employ? How do you work with a family member who doesn't know that they're ill? And when no one was looking, I imagine my dad would have read this book. The book is called You Are Not Alone, The NAMI Guide to Mental Illness and Recovery. And the book You Are Not Alone is an idea I had a decade ago, but I don't think the world was ready for it. I've interviewed 100 people so far, and I'll keep going. People use their names, and they share their journeys. Not every journey ends well. Not every journey is easy. But one of the meta points of the book is it's just okay to talk about it. It's okay to have this conversation. And so uh, it's been a great privilege and a great adventure. All the royalties go to NAMI. This is a love gift. If any of your listeners have been impacted by mental health conditions, you know what a precious mission this is. So I decided to give NAMI the copyright. I've kind of quit my day job, and all I do is work on writing the book. I'll be doing a national book tour in a year or so, and all 100 people in my book will be invited to share the stage with me. Because the idea of the book, Ned, is that lived experience is expertise. And if you've managed to live with severe depression and to keep a marriage, 
you've learned something that's really powerful. If you have schizophrenia and teach people in health class, a Maomi program called Ending the Silence, you have actually learned something about giving to other people. And if you have taken DBT and it stopped your self-harming behavior, you have learned something. And so this is the idea. It's a collection of first-person stories. Ned, you're old enough to remember Studs Terkel, aren't you? Oh, of course. Yes. Man in Chicago. Uh, he wrote a book called Working. It was interviews with 100 people about their... That was one of his many books. It was like a Jimmy Breslin of Chicago. Yes. So this is Studs Terkel meets mental illness and recovery. Yeah. And the idea is there are real people who are living with these conditions. His book, Working, changed my life because I read it when I was in about 12th grade on a beach in Wildwood, New Jersey, visiting my grandmother. And I thought, now this is cool. Yes. I know what a stonemason thinks of his job. I know how a prostitute approaches her day-to-day life. Yes. I know what it's like to be the last piano man in a Chicago hotel. I thought to myself, I've entered all these worlds. Yeah, This yeah. is so profound. And it kind of blew my mind. And then I forgot all about Stud Circle. Yeah. And, of course, I went on to live my little life, and I became a psychiatrist basically to help my dad, like a lot of people in the movie. I wouldn't say your life has been little, Ken, but how many different conditions are you going to cover in the book? Well, it's the greatest hits. Uh-huh. There's no restrictions. And so I think the big mental illnesses – Schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are kind of classically held out as the most serious. But you talk to somebody with borderline personality disorder who's been hospitalized 30 times or someone who has attempted suicide in the context of a major depression Mm -hmm. or a person with dissociative identity disorder who has a part self that is incredibly interested in death or self-harm a veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I'm not restricting it on anything other than most of the people in the book are over age 18, and they're looking back on when they first had symptoms. I've had one person volunteer as young as three. Oh, boy. But they were kicked out of preschool because they had ADHD. <laughs> and this is an amazing person who grew up to have bipolar disorder and is an exemplar of recovery in so many ways. So many people, you know, look back on their lives and see the onset in middle school or high school. That's kind of your sweet spot for trouble. Mm -hmm. The idea is it's the greatest hits and it's also family members. So when a mental illness impacts someone, it impacts the people who love them. Yes. And NAMI began as a family organization because our field, Ned, back in the day blamed parents for their kids' mental illness. One of the women I interviewed told me, you know, you had to pay them to get blamed. (laughs) So you would come in for help, write them a check, and then they would blame you. She said, can you imagine a worse deal? Yeah, no, it's a long and sorry tradition of our field that we blame the people who have the condition. Yeah, so I interviewed a 100-year-old woman who was at the first NAMI convention in 1979. This is all pre-internet everything. And she just figured out how to assemble 250 people in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And this is how the National Alliance on Mental Illness is formed. It's now the largest grassroots organization in America. 
they're for the world because uh, the rest of the world is still catching up mm -hmm. to our conceptualization of first-person lived experience, advocacy, support, and promoting more research. We need to learn more things about these conditions and about what helps people. So thanks, Ned. It's a really fun project. It's kind of the capstone of my career. So if I was always in high school, this would be my capstone project. Because <laughs> I've been asking this question, what helps people ever since I was eight years old when my dad was carted off by the police? Mm -hmm. And now I'm getting the answers, finally, mm -hmm. what actually helps people? And could you put it in a simple book, a practical book to actually help people? Millions of people enter this experience every year millions of people what percentage of people who have a treatable condition get the help that we have available it's a little less than half overall mm -hmm. and so you know is that because the mental health system couldn't be more convoluted and fragmented is that because of shame is that because with some illnesses you actually can't see that you have an illness right when john nash you know won the nobel prize for game theory he was asked how come you didn't know that those hallucinations were hallucinations mm -hmm. and he said well it came from the same place that got me the nobel prize so i took it seriously mm -hmm. he just for your for listeners uh, he's the guy they made that movie about a beautiful mind yeah yeah, yeah and so he described so eloquently well, inability to see his psychosis as an illness process because it was coming through the brain, which was filtering it. Yeah, that's a point you make, and I think you'll we see it over and over again that embedded in so-called mental illnesses usually are extraordinary talents. A lot of people don't realize that. That's why the deficit model, the illness model, leaves out so much. I mean, you mentioned Nash. In this day of COVID, you know, the PCR test uh, that we all have used, the polymerase chain reaction, that was uh, discovered, invented by a man named Kerry Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry uh, for that. And Kerry had flaming ADHD. He was wildly eccentric. He, he liked to walk on the beaches in Malibu with penguins. He was just uh, extremely eccentric. So you know, you would have said if you just knew a little bit about him that he was just crazy. But in fact, he was one of the great benefactors of, of biology. It's considered mm. next to DNA, the second most important discovery that has been made. So that's a great story. Yeah. And you see it over and over again that embedded in these people are extraordinary talents. Like your father had bipolar. My father had bipolar. That's sort of how we became such good friends. And my father spent the end of his life teaching public school in a poor town in, in New Hampshire. And to this day, there's a plaque honoring him as one of the great teachers. So oh. your book will not only be full of useful information, but it will get to the heart of these conditions and, and include the tremendous talent and dignity that these folks have. That It's often... They're often denied because so much stigma, and as you say, blaming the patient. I mean, think of yeah. the field of addiction, how we blame the addict instead of saying he's suffering from a terrible disease. You know, we say he's a lowlife, he's a scumbag, he's uh, worthless, and, and we just heap shame upon him, which of course, or her, which of course only, only makes it so much worse. It only makes it worse. 
You know, Ned, I do think you need to know your diagnosis, but you are not your diagnosis. Right. This is what I call one of my chapters is called the paradox of diagnosis that, you know, lithium helps a lot of people with bipolar disorder and does virtually nothing for people with other conditions. Mm -hmm. So you need to know what's going on, mm -hmm. but that is not who you are. Yeah. And, and it's, it's misleading because we often use the verb to be yeah. when we make diagnoses in mental health. We say you are depressed or you are schizophrenic. Yes. Whereas with other conditions, you just say you have pancreatitis or you had a, a broken hip. That's right. It's exactly right. And because, you know, the brain is central to how we think about our experience of who we are, this is tricky waters. I want to acknowledge that. So I don't blame anybody who has struggled with this question. I had a young woman say to me, so she was raised in a Catholic school with one of the hundred people I interviewed. And she said, you know, I was always taught that free will was the center of what made me unique. Well, when I was manic, I lost my sense of free will. I did things I should not have done. And so am I less than other people? And she's wrestling with this question as a brilliant young 24 year old. Right. And it's a very good question. And she is not her bipolar disorder. And she has to contend with this because that was a very scary experience. Yeah. What can listeners anticipate getting from this book? I think you've given a good feel for it. But will do you see it as a, a reference manual? Do you see it as a storybook that will expand their idea of what these conditions really are all about? So I see it as a kind of short stories meets the latest science meets someone like you. So let's say you get a diagnosis of depression. You pick this book up and there'll be Judith Beck explaining what is cognitive behavior therapy, for example, or Holly Lisenby, who has done the most research on transcranial magnetic stimulation of anyone on planet Earth. But also there'll be half a dozen people who've lived with depression. What has worked for them? What has helped them? Mm -hmm. I had a man tell me that one of the best interventions he had was a dog. Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, everybody loves dogs. He says, that's not about the love of the dog, although he loves the dog. The dog wakes up at 6 a.m. The dog eats at 7 a.m. The dog exercises. The dog has a structure. The dog goes to bed at 9 p.m. He says, I do what the dog does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, and the dog is the greatest therapeutic agent in my life. Of course, I've taken meds. Of course, I've had psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. But getting this dog has given me a kind of regularization, which has been incredibly proactively helpful. So the idea is it's not a memoir. It's a series of short stories. Mm -hmm. But it also hopefully touches upon activating the best thinkers in America, including Dr. Ned Hallowell, perhaps you've heard of him, <laughs> on you know strength-based approach to attention deficit disorder, ADHD, right? And so the idea is I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but because I'm the chief medical officer of NAMI and everybody loves NAMI, every single person I've asked has said, well, of course I'll write you 500 words on should I take these medicines forever? You know, and the idea is it's questions that people actually ask me. And so my expert who answers, do I really have to take these meds forever? Yeah. The answer begins with, first, I want to acknowledge that forever is a really long time. And all medicines have real side effects. This is what I'm going for, is a reality-based acknowledgement 
of some of the difficult questions people face. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does the research say on psychedelics for my trauma? Well, it's an excellent question. Well, it turns out I have the king of psychedelics answering that question. Who is that, by the way? It happens to be a man named Dimitri Perviolios at the University of California, San Diego. He's a lovely man, interested in trauma, EMDR, and is the quality assurance king for this giant multi-center site for psychedelic research. He's not the only one, but he's one that I am particularly fond of. But, you know, the idea would be I've approached, you know, the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, the person who invented cognitive behavior therapy for psychosis, mm -hmm. the person who developed motivational interviewing. How do you talk to somebody who you know needs help? But when you say to them, hey, why don't you get help? Their natural answer is, why don't you get help? <laughs> hey, Ken, cut down on the ice cream. Hey, I'll eat all the ice cream I want now. Right? Like, you know, look, it's my body. Who the hell are you? So if you have a family member who's refusing help, you could turn to this book and find out how to approach that person. How would Bill Miller, who invented the concept of motivational interviewing, help you approach this problem with a loved one? So it's a book for family members, but it's also a book for people with the conditions. Because the idea in a lot of this field is it's a book for family members of people who are mentally ill, mm. which I don't like the term, the mentally ill, right? So the idea, this is not that. And it's not one diagnosis. These things are existing on a spectrum. Yes. You read the DSM-5, what does it say about our precious bipolar disorder? It's the transition between depression and schizophrenia from genetics, mm -hmm. you know, phenomenology, mm -hmm. biology, presentation. So what they're saying in the DSM is the bipolar disorder has the elements that are related to psychosis, which my dad had, and it's related to the mood disorders, depression, which can also result in psychosis. So it's not like there's these bright lines. Mm -hmm. So that's why I've taken on the whole idea, which occasionally I look myself in the mirror and I say, now, what were you thinking? Yeah, well, right. Because I've taken on the whole idea. Yeah. It's wonderful that you're doing that. And, and I have to say, you've put together a stunning group of experts and I'm sure never before have, you know, so many luminaries been appearing between the covers of one book. And I think it's a testament to how much people respect you, Ken, that they agree to do it. And they're being paid nothing to do this. They're, they're being paid squat. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a love gift. Yeah. Once you have devoted your life to answering a question, right? Let's just take the question, what is the best approach to addiction, Right. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Mark Albanese, a beloved and cherished addictionologist, is trying to take on that question. Mm -hmm. And he's going to try to be respectful of the 12-step model, mm -hmm. the whole Suboxone model, how to think about medication-assisted treatment in the context of 12 steps, what is the definition of sobriety, and he's going to do it in 500 words or less. Right. <laughs> one of the things I've noticed in the field, because you're my friend, Ed, you get 501, you get that one extra word, 501 <laughs> words. But one of the things I've noticed in the field is people get very bogged down in positions, Yes. right? Yes. Sobriety only is 12 steps, or medication assistant only, or Assisted outpatient treatment, forced medication and accountability is the only way to help people. Right. Or it's evil to force people to take medication. Well, it turns out I interviewed a man who told me that 
forced treatment in San Antonio, Texas saved his life. Yeah. And I'm not saying that we should do that in every state. What I'm saying is there's a man who said it saved my life. And people should know that as they're contemplating policy. So instead of going to the polarization positions, why don't we actually interview a hundred people and learn from them and see how many different approaches work. I, I always say do whatever works as long as it's safe and it's legal. There are many, many ways to find improvement with these conditions. And, and also I know you'll be stressing the fact that these conditions are not a hundred percent bad, that they come with tremendous talents and gifts. I, in fact, I think it's rare to find someone who has enormous creative talent who doesn't have one of these conditions, whether it's uh, dyslexia, ADHD, major depression, bipolar disorder, addiction, you go down the list, anxiety disorder. It's rare to find someone who has enormous creative talent who doesn't have one of these. So it's really an interesting phenomena, isn't it? Yeah. I was given a talk at some random state for NAMI one year. And of course, I introduced myself as the psychiatrist who went into the field because my dad was so loving and so sick. I mean, I spent a fair amount of my childhood at Northville State Hospital outside of Detroit. And this man was driving me to the airport. And he said, you know, there's this whole creativity and mental illness thing. I said, yeah, I know Kay Jamison. Everybody can bond over how amazing Kay Jamison is. Then he says, have you ever considered that your father's special gift was in being loving? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I got on the plane and I thought, this man's an absolute genius. Yeah. My dad's special charismatic aspect was in loving. I didn't even like science, Ned. Yeah. I only applied to the 11 medical schools that didn't require calculus. <laughs> I was not the smartest guy in the room. I only wanted to do it to help this amazing person. And so, like, how does that combination of severe illness and charisma and loving nature put things together? Yeah. Right. You know, so that was his special talent. He wasn't much of a drawer, but boy, everybody who knew him was like, oh my gosh, he was just so loving and attentive and charismatic. And that was his talent. Well, like father, like son. I mean, you're yourself loving, charismatic, talented, and uh, you're going to bring this game changer of a book. It's not just the information that it will contain, although that's a huge amount. And as I said, there's no book like it. But it's the stories, the heartfelt stories that will show how these conditions are very multifaceted and, and they come with talents embedded and disaster possibility. And for families who are just lost and don't know where to turn, this book will open the door. And it's not a man I'll call Ted, because Ted Smith, who lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, is a real person. A lot of books are a man I'll call Ted. And so one of the publishers who bid on my book said, Ken, we don't think you can find people who will use their name. <laughs> and I said, I think you're five years behind the times. Right. Because in that five or 10 years, people would prefer to help others and to be heard. And privacy and secrecy had its place and time. Yes. But more and more people, and I'm talking about people who are living with chronic hallucinations people who've had multiple suicide attempts, people whose lives have been saved by multiple Narcan, yeah. you know, overdose reversals. Yeah. They're like, yeah, I want to tell my story. People who've lost their children to Department of Family and Children's Services and got them back. I'm impressed every single time, you know, that if somebody says, so I give a talk at some random NAMI, NAMI, Wisconsin. I say, hey, by the way, I'm writing a book. Anybody want to be in the book? You got to use your name. I'll listen to your story. I get 10 people to email me. 
10 people. Of course. Right? Yeah. Ken, here's what I went through. Ken, here's what my family, you know, and it's just incredible. So that's the, uh, I think the secret of it is it's actually real people living with this. And that gets back to our friend Stud Sterkle. So he didn't make up a man I'll call Ted. Right. You know, Ted Smith was a stonemason and he was aware that he was part of a dying industry as people went more and more to bricks. And I remember that from when I was 17 years old. Right. Like that story stayed with me. Yeah. And I think it's it's true. I've seen it over the years. People who have one or another condition tend to be very generous. They tend to want to share everything that they can that will help others. And let's pray with your help and the progress of time that stigma, the walls of stigma and shame come crashing down and, and we can let the the light of truth and understanding shine in and people can, with pride, talk about their lives. That's right. There's a group called the Me Too Orchestra. The Me Too Orchestra is people with mental health conditions and those who love them run by a very high level musician who happens to live with bipolar disorder. Uh-huh. I was interviewing somebody who happened to be a musician in it. And uh, the inspiration for this group came from the gay men's chorus. And she said to me, can you imagine we have a mental illness pride group now? <laughs> and I thought, that's the ticket. And she says, yeah, I had a panic attack the other day. And between sets or practices, I say to the person, I had a panic attack yesterday. And they said, yeah, me too. Yeah. It's the Me Too Orchestra. It's all okay. And it's a high-level orchestra. I tell you, I gave a talk. I went to a high school in New Hampshire called Exeter. It's a very rigorous private school, prep school. I gave a talk there a couple of years ago to the student body about ADHD, which is my specialty. And when the talk was over, the principal came up to me and said, Ned, that was an excellent talk, but you came perilously close to implying that our students should wish they had ADHD. And I said, oh, gee, only perilously close? That was my message. I want them to wish they had ADHD. <laughs> Another failed lecture. Exactly, Another failed exactly. Lecture. When one of my daughters was told she had ADHD and we came over to see you, you said, oh, you have the gift. Yes, yes. And I thought, yes. God, is there anything better than a positive framing of what is typically interpreted as a vulnerability, right? right? Deficit disorder. What a terrible term. I mean, it, deficit it, disorder. It's right in the title. Could you fix yeah. that title, Ned? Could you get your I best wish people I, on that? Could. Back to it, me? It's so un- inaccurate. I mean, we don't have a deficit of attention. I have the condition myself. We have an abundance of attention. Our challenge is to control it. You know, if it were a deficit, yes. it would be a form of dementia, which it certainly is not. So I assume you cover dementia, talking about uh, the condition people fear. I assume you have a chapter on Alzheimer's or? It's not chapter by diagnosis. Okay, okay. It's a chapter by, let's take 20 people who became advocates to change the world based on what they've been through. Okay. 20 people for whom peers or community changed their whole life, finding another person who was like them. Mm-hmm. So it's more organized by the experience as opposed to there's not a chapter on schizophrenia. There'll be an index. Somebody's going to have to do some work because if you want to learn about bipolar disorder, it's going to be throughout the book. There'll be six people, right? And then there'll be four experts on that topic. If you want to learn about schizophrenia, there'll be 15 people, but there'll be space throughout the book because, you know, when one family is blamed, that's a story about how that family came to terms 
with our worst quality as a field, mm. right? And then a different chapter is a person's voices stopped when they got on a medicine called clozapine, which is FDA approved. So there isn't one chapter. I decided not to do it by diagnosis because that was more deficit-ish. Good. Right? Yes. Good for you. So, yes, absolutely. You know, it's yeah. an adventure, Ned. You've written, what, 20 books? Yep. <laughs> yep. So you know all about it. The difference between you and me is actually 20 books. <laughs> no. Because I've written zero books. Well, this will be a very big book. What a service. It's just remarkable, Ken, what you're doing. And, and I just, uh, I'm sure... Our listeners want to know when and where can they get the book? When and where can we get You Are Not Alone? You Are Not Alone should be out in a year and change. I'll be doing intergalactic book tour. And anybody who I interviewed for the book will be on the stage with me wherever I do it. Uh -huh. Because the whole point is that if you've lived with something, whether it's losing a family member who's died by suicide or mastering your depression and staying with your marriage or battling with schizophrenia and finding meaning from your experience, you should be on the stage with me because there's someone in the audience who's had that experience. And the idea is that experts everywhere in the world, and they're just beginning to talk. They're just beginning to open up. Mm -hmm. And so I think I got lucky, Ned, if I'd wrote this book proposal 10 years ago, nobody would have wanted to share their story mm -hmm. and nobody wanted to hear it. But now in the pandemic, mental illness and mental health went from a they thing to a we thing. Right. Because everybody has battled with isolation or depression or schedule disruption or uncertainty or grief. Everybody knows somebody who's been battling. Now, Ken, if somebody wanted to reach you, is there any way they can do that? Yeah, Ken at NAMI.org. So it's Ken for Ken Duckworth, Ken at N-A-M-I, NAMI.org. Yeah, pretty, it's like a vanity simple. license plate. It's like, you know, I'm sure Robert Kraft has like number three or something. You know, <laughs> it's some kind of like that. So there's only one guy named Ken that works at NAMI. And uh, even I can remember it, even on a bad day. I'm like, what's my email? Oh, Ken is my name. Ken well, you're, you're doing a great, great service to the world. And it one of the many reasons I'm proud to count you among my friends. Thank you so much for coming on. Ned, I have to say one thing about you. Yeah? This whole chat's been about me. So I wrote about my dad in my essay, When the World Was Made of Rock, in 1986. Uh -huh. And I wrote that my motivation to become a psychiatrist was fundamentally to be in service to understanding what my dad went through and what millions of people who must have traveled in these waters were like. So I interviewed at the best programs in America, a proud graduate of the University of Michigan and Temple University School of Medicine, and every person ignored it. And they talked about everything else in my essay. I was like, what's all this love for college football? Which, of course, I'm perfectly <laughs> happy to discuss because I'm from Michigan. Right. So like, like, let's go. And then the day before I met you, Ned, I nearly exited the field of psychiatry because I had a very famous psychoanalyst tell me that this was a terrible reason to become a psychiatrist. And in fact, the first person to actually address my essay humiliated me. And before I left the interview from this world-famous hospital in tears, I said, uh, what is a good reason to become a psychiatrist? And he paused for a second. I don't think a lot of people asked him questions. Yeah. I think he got to you know, pronounce things. And he said, well, if your father was a psychiatrist. <laughs> and so this guy is not thinking about the profound workforce shortage we have. 
Half of all counties in America have zero psychiatrists. Most psychiatrists take no insurance. Like we have a catastrophic workforce shortage. Then the next day I decided I was actively looking into cardiology because I realized they drive really nice cars. And I thought (laughs) maybe I could talk to people about their hearts because that seems to be more socially acceptable because it has meaning to people, your heart, right? It's, It's very close to psychiatry. And then I met you and you actually read my essay and you were the only person out of 45 people that I interviewed with, 15 programs, three interviews, who said, Ken, this is fantastic. (laughs) So the reason I'm a Red Sox fan, the reason I go to Cape Cod for fun, the reason my kids went to the Boston Latin School is because of you, Ned. You were the only person who saw the potential for upside in my brutally painful journey. Mm, You mm, read my essay and said, Ken, you know what you could do with this? This is such an asset. mm, mm. I'd never even heard of NAMI. But of course, if I were to pursue this to its logical extent, I would become the chief medical officer for NAMI and I would act in service to the shared mission that you and I understand. But the record should reflect that my Boston Red Sox chops, my Cape Cod affinity, my addiction to lobster rolls. It's all about you, Ned, because you were the only person who read my essay and saw a strength instead of something to be ashamed of, something to hide from, something to be ignored. Well, I'm grateful and pleased uh, as can be that I played some small role, but you've uh, you've gone and, and done it, and it's a stunning stunning achievement. The book will just be a tremendous game changer. Again, if you want to reach Ken, Ken, Dr. Ken Duckworth, medical director of NAMI, author of the forthcoming You Are Not Alone. He's giving you his personal email, ken at nami.org. He's very committed to being open to people and, and being for them in any way that he can. And if you have comments about the podcast, please send us an email. You should send it to different at hallowellcenter.org. We'd love to hear your comments on this interview, your ideas for other guests we should interview, your uh, thoughts, questions, anything you'd like to send our way, we'd love to hear it. Once again, let me thank from the bottom of my heart on behalf of all of our listeners and people everywhere who care about these issues, thank you so much to Dr. Duckworth. He's uh, doing a a tremendous service, a mitzvah, is that the term? a tremendous service to uh, the world with this amazing and unique book. Thank you so much, Ken, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Ned, and thank you for being you. Because without you, I'd be, you know, operating on people's cardiovascular problems. (laughs) I probably could have helped a few people, but you actually helped me live my actual life purpose. And so without you, Ned, I'm telling you, you know, I'd be, uh, you know, doing vascular procedures. Well, so. <laughs> in any case, thank you, my dear friend, and we'll see you soon. And All the best, Ned. Thanks again. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.